Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. This is Jeremy Hutchings. I'm dialing in and it's raining here. We're uh, looking like we might get the start at least of an autumn break um, late March, which is really pleasing. In this conversation and podcast, I'm delighted to speak with um, the owner and managing director of a business in the Riverina that has, it's three generations old and is a really significant and um, success story in agribusiness in our area. Um, my f- grandfather um, on Dalry used to head into this business um, many moons ago and my father had a strong working relationship with Ted Hutchin in the last generation and what has been achieved in this business, Hutchin and Pierce, the John Deere dealership for the Riverina and surrounds in the last 20 years is significant and that's largely as a result, in my opinion, on um, Aaron Hutchins' input and leadership of this business that over 20 years has gone from 100 employees to 300 employees and is really um, achieving significant results and adding a lot of value and making a real impact for farmers in our area. So I'm delighted this morning to introduce Aaron Hutchin to you all and um, to share with you the Hutchin and Pierce story. Aaron, welcome to Profitable Farmer. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Um, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. So just to kick off, um, Hutchin and Pierce has been in our area and in this region for, for a long time. And, you know, the business has its roots going back generations with a lot of local farming families. How important is that to you? And would you mind sharing the Hutchin and Pierce history for us as we as we launch in? Yeah, and I, I probably apologise in advance for jumping all over the place, but uh, it's kind of my style. But um, yeah, I, I'm more than happy to go through uh, the history of Hutchin P. So we um, we started at Coolman. The, the business originated in Coolman, which is about forty kilometres uh, north of Wagga here. And my grandfather was working in a uh, fuel station slash uh, small uh, garage in Coolerman, um, for working for a guy by the name of J.R. Ritchie. And he had all daughters and he was looking to retire and he essentially sold the business to my grandfather and my grandfather's colleague, Mr. Cess Pierce. So they 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 partnered up together and, and hence the name Hutchin and Pierce. Um, and they acquired the business in 1953, about 67 years ago. And then um, it, Mr. Pierce uh, was a few years senior to my grandfather. So he um, he probably, from my records, it was about 12, 13 years after that, Mr. Pierce sold his interest in the business to my grandfather. And it's been Hutchin owned ever since. Uh, but We've we've kept the the name. It's iconic in our area, and um, you know we I'd love a dollar for everybody that asks to Mr. Pierce's because uh, he's been out of business for such a long time. But um, yeah, we've got no aspirations of ever changing the name. 
Um, yeah, so I guess from that point, my uh, my father and my uncle uh, came into the business, um, and uh, you know we we were primarily in Coolum to start with, and then we ventured into Wagga and later uh, Tamora and then Albury, and and uh, I think from my records here, we were um, nineteen ninety eight. We moved up to Cowra. And uh, I think you asked me to speak to uh, kind of um, what did the business look like when I um, started interacting and, and having a bit to do with the business. And that was probably um, in and around that late 90s, early 2000s time period where we had six locations. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about 70, 80 staff at the time. Um, I, I was... Uh, Late 90s, I was finishing my HSC uh, down at Yanko Ag High School. And uh, I came back to the business um, 2nd of January 2001 and started as a diesel um, apprentice, uh, diesel technician, um, started my apprenticeship um, back in the business then. So, yeah, like I said, we had about 70, 80 staff, six locations, um, and then... I had the opportunity to move from the workshop into the sales side of the business. Um, my father was a salesman. All I ever aspired to do was um, to be a salesman, um, but I had to come up through the business. And um, I reckon it was three or four years later when my father gave me the opportunity to come into sales, which coincided with um, the first early uh, auto steer parallel tracking John Deere systems that sort of came into the market. And, you know, I, I kind of grabbed that by, um, you, know, you know, by the years. And I, I guess that, that sort of coincided with H&P, I think, taking a, a strong line and a bit of a, a bit of a focus on precision ag, um, you know, in its early stages, um, you know, back in those early 2000s. And so if we fast forward... 20 years and I'd like to come back to that early early journey that you experienced through the business and then into leadership but would you mind just painting a picture of the business today so today uh, we've got close to 300 employees uh, we have 13 Hutchin and Pierce dealerships um, which have a further two offices supporting the business uh, one being our group administration office and the other being our tech site office, which we can get into a bit of detail um, around tech site a little bit later on. And we also are in partnership um, with a friend of mine by the name of James Evans, and we have uh, another four locations um, over the other side of the Great Dividing Range, um, supporting the Sydney and South Coast um, um, area. Has the business fundamentally stayed the same or do you see it as a different business now to that that it was when you started 20 years ago? I think we do a great job of overcomplicating life and overcomplicating business and fundamentally I think it's still the same. We, You know, it's a people-to-people -people relationship business and it's about supporting people. And um, the thing that's changed has been the scale and Kind of sneaks up on you and, and it's moments like now that you're sort of 
stand still and look behind you that you realize um how far you really have come but um it's a scale and you know our business is no different from uh, a lot of your uh listeners business uh, listener businesses because you know agriculture's you know our margins are getting um, tighter and tighter and and we have to get really good at what we're doing and and we also need that scale to be able to survive and, and in our business we need that scale to to provide uh, our customers with some of the solutions that uh, they expect now where they didn't um, quite a few years ago. Aaron, you mentioned stepping into the business as a diesel mechanic or into the workshop and then transitioning into sales. Um, how important do you reflect on was it to move up through the business um, rather than perhaps going and doing something else and arriving back into the business 12 years later? Yeah, well, I always... I, I always grew grew up as a as a child wanting to be in the business, and I've never ever wanted to do anything else. I'm doing what I'm love. You know, I'm, I love what I'm doing in the moment. It's what I've always wanted to do. So I, you know, in the early stages, I probably had some internal um, thoughts that um, you know how would how would the employees in the business uh, accept me being a young leader, but also. Um, progressive and, and, and growing the business. I needed their trust to, to do that. So from my standpoint, coming through the business did two things. It helped me earn a lot of trust with my um, um, fellow um, employees, but it also gave me a good level of understanding right across the business. You know, my, I think my father always used to joke with me that, you know, obviously the third generations, the 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 first generation starts at the second grows at the third usually stuffs it up so i, I kind of had that hanging over my head the whole way through and kind of used it as a bit of a uh, bit of a motivator never to uh never to stuff it up so to speak and and uh and hopefully uh prove that um myth wrong i have no doubt now aaron you mentioned that transition into sales would you mind sort of just joining the dots and helping us set the context where your career moved to in the business from sales in then into, into leadership. Would you mind just painting that? Yeah. So, I, so yeah, made that transition into sales. At the time, we had uh, an average age of about 65 across our sales team, and we had some new technology coming in the business, which I referenced before, you know, in that uh, auto steer and 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 um and guidance space so i i came into the business into the sales role and um operated in that space for two or three years so that would have been sort of mid 2000s um and i think i, I went through a period of time where we we went through a bit of a downturn and we had a used equipment um challenge in the business so you know, I kind of got swung into uh, the used equipment manager for a period of a couple of years to, I guess, just, you know, in our in our business, that's where all our, our cash is tied up is in our used equipment. So um, I, I was kind of given that project to get that back under control and develop some processes in there, um, you know, to, uh, to solve that challenge. And if I sort of run up to that 2008 period of time, um, 
you know, I, 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 my father had kind of achieved everything that he'd ever hoped to and more in the business in 2008. And he was, you know, he was off and, and focused on other things. And I, I guess it gave me a natural path to step in there and assume the day-to-day responsibility of the business. And, um, yeah, so that was about 2008. And then 2010, my wife and I purchased the business of my mother and father in March 2010. Um, and, you know, it's reflecting back on it, it was interesting that I I remember operating the business for my father and being able to make any decision and logically looking at any problem and just making the calls on the run and not, not having that um, affect me any which way. And then the minute that I, I signed over the business and, and took over responsibility, I remember all of a sudden um having some complexes around some of the decisions and the amount of families that were affecting and you, you know and whilst it was only short and I quickly uh, I quickly got my head around that I, I found it interesting where w- one day I had no problem sleeping the next day I was up in the middle of the night wondering about what could have happened if 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 things weren't managed or done properly the stakes go up that's right, right, that's right. Day, yeah and so on for our clients um, and you would see this often, succession can be a major issue. Um, how was it for you, that transition, and um, how did your family navigate that so that the company did continue to grow and thrive with a transition in ownership between generations? So, yeah, reflecting back on it, um we probably didn't formally go through much planning whatsoever i you know i, I always uh, assumed that my parents knew that i wanted to uh, that i had a pretty clear path in what i wanted to do i remember you know looking back my father always involved me in a lot of the key decision making uh, even even from a very early age you know pre um you know even during high school i was invited to meetings that I would probably, well, somebody of my age probably wouldn't have been exposed to. But, you know, I was the fly on the wall and sort of picked up those conversations and picked up the context and um, had a pretty good understanding from a high level uh, where the business was and where it was going and what we're trying to achieve. And, and I, you know, like I said, around that 2008 to 2010 um, time frame, you know, my father had kind of achieved everything that he'd ever hoped to achieve in the business and he um you know he was off doing other things and and really gave me free run so um and whilst he you know it was not as easy as what i what i'm saying here now but um he i guess i i was able to manage the business for a couple of years and prove to him that i was ready um, I think I think it was never a question of when, uh, uh, if it was just a matter of when, and proved to him that I could handle the business, could handle you know the, the load and the stress, and I'd started started to build a pretty good team around me, and um, you know that's probably my single biggest um, successes that I've had is 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 building the team because you, know, you can't do it all on your own, and um, <clears throat> you're only as good as your team, so. Um, sort of had put all that into place and and it you know, I had the support of um I guess my 
banker and I had the support of my solicitor and support of my accountant. And it just, I guess the time just got to a point where, you know, my wife and I were uh, recently married and we had a family on the way and, you know, we wanted to, um, you know, we wanted to make it our own and, and um, you know, we, we came to a, a, a good agreement there in, in 2010 and, and um, made it all happen. It speaks perhaps to the older generation of the importance of including the younger generation in the bigger picture and some of the more important meetings and some of the more important decisions. Um, do you feel like that, the fact that you were included in those from a young age and throughout helped you in your understanding of the business and your confidence in taking it on and moving it forward? Absolutely. I, I remember, um, you know, as a teenager going to dealer meetings and, you know, the average age of the dealer, you know, dealers in the room would be, um, you know, you know, late 50s, 60s. And, you know, I used to get a felt that I got a few funny looks by, you know, who's this young kid and what's he doing here? But I just sort of sat um, patiently and quietly in the in the corner of the room and, you know, picked up on, um, you know, how, how people interacted with each other and, and picked up on, you know, how John Deere dealt and kind of tried to develop a bit of a, you know, persona of HMP and, and you know, what we we're trying to achieve. And I was exposed at a very young age with, um, um, you know, our our um our banks and 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 got to know them pretty well and and it was always exposed to a pretty high level within John Deere as well so you know my school holidays when I was in um or even back to primary school was that uh my father used to drive around a red Falcon Ute and uh, he had the old bag phone and I used to play secretary and Write around in the Ute and answer phone calls and write down notes and and um, any anyone out there that knows my father, uh, he, he used to drive pretty fast. So <laughs> I wanted him to focus on the road and I, I would just you know I'd be writing down phone phone numbers and and scratching on the back of a uh, of a diary uh, details around a deal to to uh, put on a fax when we got into the dealership to, um, you know, order the tractor or, or or confirm something. Brilliant. Aaron, you mentioned the importance of building trust with the team so that you could lead growth. Um, what's your management or leadership style? How would you sort of reflect on what your style is and how have you gone about the building of trust, perhaps back in those early days as a younger leader? Yeah, I think I was probably more worried about it than than it's actually being a problem itself. That you know, you know, you know, when I took over the business, I was um, I was mid twenties, um, and you know, I had a lot of senior people, and you know, we were you know, in those early days, we had 70, 80 families that depended on the business every week. So <clears throat> I think they quickly, you know, I I didn't want to be seen as the um, third generation being born with a silver spoon, um, more being able to, I guess, earn my own stripes and, and be able to um, be able to have earned the position, not inherited the position. But, but you know, I was having been exposed to everyone early on, I think everyone uh, knew me pretty well. And, um, you, you know, my, I guess if I answer the question about what I always try to be as transparent and as honest and and 
as, as I can be, and whether that's dealing externally or dealing internally. Um, I guess I'm guided by that. That's, you know, that they're all very clear values of the business. And that's, you know, I think that helped establish that trust. And as far as I'm concerned, trust is the currency of the world. And if you've, if, if you've got a customer or an employee that will trust what you're saying, and, and as you all know, trust takes years, if not decades, to build and seconds to lose. So it's got to be managed very, very carefully. But if you've got the trust of your people, uh, you can achieve anything. Do you have a method for that or is it a natural approach that is just about being honest and authentic all the time? Is yeah. There more, is there more to it than that? No, not really. No, I don't think there is a method. It's just it's being honest and trustworthy and, and just simply doing what you say you're going to do. Um, do that every day over and over and over. Eventually, eventually it builds. I don't think there's any more science to it than that. Did you have a vision for the business in those earlier years? Did you have a vision of 17-plus locations and hundreds of employees? Did you have a sense of what it is you wanted the business to look like in the future 10 or 15 years ago? Well, it was it was clear to see what was happening around the world in the John Deere space. There was... Uh, you know, the US market or, or the North American market was was probably uh, leading the way and there was a lot of consolidation that was happening, you know, through those early 2000 um, time frame. And for a long time, I could, you know, I probably looked at that and thought, oh, well, that's a North American thing. It's not necessarily an Australian thing. And then I could see a couple of, um, I, I guess I bought into, you know, why John Deere were trying to um, drive some consolidation um, because, you know, it forced dealers to, to be more professional and better at what they do. Um, you know, we could see that we, we over the last sort of uh, 10 years, we've had quite a number of corporate uh, farming businesses uh, in our area of responsibility, and that's forced us to to adapt and, and be a bit more professional and, and open up a lot more services uh, that we probably had never have, uh, well, sped things up a bit. So combining all that, um, it was... It was... Uh, it was it was pretty clear that the opportunity was there. Uh, I guess if you if you could overlay it with, um, you know, the John Deere dealer network is is pretty closed, and a lot of um, other John Deere dealers around um, were, were aging out and and probably didn't have a lot of uh, family interested in coming in the business. So it was just a great opportunity. And like I, I come back to what I said earlier, um, you know, I'm currently doing what I love doing and. Um, um, I like the challenge of, of, you know, growing the business and, and um, I guess, overcoming some of the challenges that come with scale. And and I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about Australian ag and I'm pretty passionate about Australian agribusiness. And, you know, the, the, the further and further we get into this, the more and more um, foreign-owned um, farmlands and agribusinesses that we're seeing um, 
you know, in everything we do um, in our area. And, you know, just have a look at some of the larger John Deere dealers at the moment. They're uh, foreign owned, um, be, it, be it US or Canada or, or other parts of the world. So, you know, I, um, you know, I think there's a real place for, for HMP to 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 lead not just um, the John Deere dealer network as you know from a performance and a, and a capacity standpoint delivering solutions to our customers, but also toe to toe with some of the foreign owned corporately run businesses. How important is that John Deere partnership that you've had now for so long, um, and what's underpinned the strength of that for you? So if I go back to the early days when my grandfather started it with Mr. Pierce, we were, uh, in the early days, we, we had car franchises. So we had the Morris car franchise and the uh, Chrysler car franchise. And that slowly sort of uh, over a period of time developed into some ag franchises. I think we had the Nuffield tractor um, franchise and we had the Case tractor franchise. We had the Versatile Tractor Franchise and we also had the New Holland Harvester Franchise. And, and I think there was a period of time in about early 80s, might have been 81, 82, somewhere around that time frame that we we had the, the White Case Tractor Franchise, the Versatile Tractor Franchise, the New Holland Harvester Franchise, and John Deere were really trying to promote their brand and, and develop some, some dealers and we, we took on John Deere. So we had the whole, you know, the whole... Um, Hamburg with a lot for a while and you know that that quickly got to a point where we had to pick and choose you know who we're going to partner partner with long term and um, you know obviously I wasn't part of those conversations but my grandfather and father and my uncle made the decision to stick with John Deere I think they felt that it had uh, a lot better product offering and and probably um, you know they they felt that um, John Deere was trustworthy and transparent and the, the opportunity was there and in hindsight it was a, a fantastic decision because you know I roll roll forward to my relationship with Deer now and um you know it's incredibly important you know roughly 90 cents in every dollar or 95 cents in every dollar um that, that flows through the business is 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 related back to John Deere so um part of our success I think has been narrowing down on deciding what we really want to be really, really good at and also being honest with ourselves and, and stating what we're not going to do anymore. Um, we didn't want to be a, a supermarket to everybody. We wanted to narrow down our focus and be really, really good at the deer business. And we've had to um, drop franchises to be able to make sure we've got enough bandwidth whether that's in our workshops or our parts departments or our sales departments to make sure that we uh, are getting that deer business done uh, essentially for a start. I want, I want to come back to that decision-making around saying no to things and focusing. Before we do, um, what impresses you most about the John Deere brand and the John Deere business? John Deere is a 180-year plus business and um <clears throat> you know i think i think their focus on uh as a company and um you know i think they've been voted one of the most top uh one of the most ethical businesses in the 
in the Fortune 500 for you know a number of years now. So I think they're very transparent, honest, and and you know hold a lot of values that that we do here at HMP. But um, you know just the the focus and um, determination to innovate um, and provide solutions to our customers. Um, you, you know, is Deer perfect? No, but um, across a number of different product ranges and, and across the, the broader business, I think they uh, they they do the best job um, out of all of the manufacturers. So, like uh, some innovations that come to mind and that are game changers, if I could call out two, one one would be the the, the cotton picker, the CP six ninety. You know that that was a piece of technology that was brought to the market that you know basically eliminated you know between eight to fifteen people in the paddock, and uh, you know back in the old cotton picker basket picker days to a to a product that uh, essentially can be operated by one person and then having just just an additional person picking up bales out of the paddock. You know the, the and that 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 kind of the efficiency gains allowed you know single um round bale module picker is as efficient as as two to three basket pickers so you know that was a real game changer for the cotton industry um you know it, it was it was amazing bit of uh, engineering and, and i guess if i could focus on one that we're seeing starting to roll out at the moment is is some technology that that we're starting to see in the, the sprayer space. And there's a, a couple of people at mark to the market at the moment with um, what they call um, green on brown technology, where you know, using cameras to identify um, plants in a fallow paddock to, to spot spray those out. But the the technology that deer are looking to release uh, in the not too distant future is that green on green. Um, technology, which you know, I think in my mind that you know is is an absolute game changer to be able to reduce um, herbicide uh, usage down by eighty plus percent, in some cases ninety percent. Um, game changer for for our customers, but also a game changer for the the planet. Mm. So, you know, I guess to answer your question, some of the, you know, to, to be partnered with a business that's focused on. Uh, delivering efficiencies back to their customers like that um, is pretty special. Yeah, it really is. Um, might come back to the technology piece. Um, you mentioned focus a few times there. Um, I think the values alignment conversations one we have with clients a lot about it's really important to be clear on your core values and make sure you're doing business where there's values alignment. It, it just shines through that you feel that and always have and um, yeah, probably absolutely will continue to with John Deere. But you also mentioned focus and having to be just as clear on the things that you stop doing or say no to. We've got quite a few farming families that are running four and five and six and seven enterprises and some off-farm stuff as well, and, and have, they've created real complexity. Um, how important has it been for you to stop doing key functions and offering everything and and to have real focus in your business model for a start there's nothing wrong with having a complex 
business model if that's what you choose to have. And if you choose to be complex and you're good at being complex, well, that's that's fantastic. But for us, um, the simpler we could make it, you know, with, with the number of staff in the business, we have to keep it really simple. And the simpler we can make it, the better, better it is for everybody to understand what we, you know, what we need to achieve every day when we get up and go to work. So, so we, we started oh, probably about seven or eight years ago looking at um, where our revenue was coming from um, and where our effort was going to in the business across, you know, different departments and different product. Um, and, you know, the 80-20 the rule is such a good rule where, you know, 80% of our business was always coming from deer, but 80% of our efforts were going into products that were not John Deere. So we, we went through and rationalised our product offering and, you know, decided that we weren't going to be everything to everyone and just focus on, you know, essentially the deer business being tractors, combines, cedars, sprayers. And, you know, I had, at the time we, we had a few franchises that we, we um, stopped participating with and and let go and you know I had some customers that were quite upset that they had to go to you know other dealers to get that product moving forward because that product was part of you know that that customer's um, system but I think over time everyone's understood that you know where we wanted to be and, and in order to get there we had to we had to let go of, of, of the stuff that um, we've all of us have only got so much bandwidth. And, and we wanted all of that bandwidth to be in the John Deere business. And, um, you know, we've stayed true to that and it's served us pretty well. And, um, you know, I think it's only going to become more and more relevant moving forward as, you know, and we'll talk a little bit later on about technologies, but, you know, moving forward, it's not going to be a, a hydraulic motor or an engine failure that stops a self-propelled sprayer. It's going to be something's wrong with the algorithm. And for us to get our head around and understand that, and diagnose that, and fix that, uh, we need to be focused on it. We need to be we need to be doing that every single day. How hard have some of those sorts of decisions been for you, and how have you gone about affecting that change constructively? Because as, as you say, I imagine that a lot of your clients might have struggled with a decision like that, and certainly some of your team as well. Um, would you mind just speaking to navigating the big decisions and, and navigating change with your team? Yeah, change management's a, uh, you know probably a whole another hour discussion. We'll have to book up after this, I suppose. But um, yeah, I think I think uh, at the end of the day got to balance a couple of things we've got to, got to do what's right for the business but we've also got to do what's right for our customer if we if we haven't made that correct choice well it's doomed to fail for a start and then then you need to make sure you you bring um, your customers and your, your employees along for the ride and buy them into it so for us we would um we would start that strategy uh, we'd build that into our our you know, um, forward planning sessions and, and strategy sessions. And, you know, I try to get my team as involved, if not driving the whole strategy piece. Uh, the, the more engagement I could get from my team uh, in the in those processes, um, the more effective they become. So, 
you know, if anything, in, in those sessions, I was simply guiding and making sure that people were staying on the road or on the on the right track. I'd let them wander off from time to time, but essentially keeping everyone in the zone where we needed to be. And, you know, I guess that's, a, that's if you can get that and you have your team driving um, the initiatives that you want them to achieve, but they've come up with it themselves and they're, they're bought into it, well, um, it makes the rest pretty easy. So if we jump forward to now and 300 employees, Aaron, how do you how do you manage that? How do you nurture culture and how do you have it that your key people have that real sense of ownership in the direction that the company's going? So one of the key, so it's just scale, so it's just more people. So it's just, you know, one thing that I'm incredibly proud of is the team that I've put together and, um, you know, it's just simply mean, meant that I've had to expand that team out to be able to handle more locations and um, have that filter down through the people um, or through our staff. But one of probably one of the, the key initiatives that we've had that has allowed us to, I guess, get that message down and was uh, was our AEM all employee meeting. And whilst we missed it last year. Um, Planning's already begun on our AEM for this current year, but we've we've probably done four or five of them now, where we've hired out the uh, Civic Theatre here in Wagga, and we we and it was a big call at the time, but we decided to shut all the stores for the day, and we bus everybody in. And for me, it was really important that all of our staff could sit down together at the same time and hear the one constant message from me all together as a group. And the other, you know, just just to reiterate, the the other benefits that we saw at the AEM was, you know, in the first couple of years, we saw people pretty much stick to themselves and, and not interact with with many people. And uh, as as the years have gone on, you know, it's really good to see how we get good cross fertilisation between the branches and departments to a point where, you know, we're not we're not. Um, 13 different H&P locations, we're operating as one big H&P organisation. So, um, you know, that's been, that AEM has been pretty powerful for us and uh, we're looking forward to, to having, uh, pretty disappointed we missed out on, on uh, the AEM last year, but we're looking forward to um, having that again in August this year. A lot of businesses that do get to the sort of scale that you have, have exactly what you just described. They have states or territories or functions within the business competing against each other. I mean, crudely in a farming context, it might be the, the wool guys, you know, fighting or disagreeing with or competing against the cropping guys. Um, hmm. How have you sought to manage that and, and drive that out so that it absolutely is a one-team mantra? Well, culture's not what you say, it's what you do. So... You know, the AEM is a good example, but to be honest, everything you do, if you operate in a way that the rest of the team pick up and understand how they're expected to interact, um, I, you know, if you're looking for a secret source, it's probably not a secret source. It's just sticking true to who we are and what we do and being honest and transparent and, and um, you know, I guess from a in our in our business we're measured on um 
how we support and back up the products we sell. And, you know, in that space, you know, everyone needs to be operating with a high level of uh, high sense of urgency and and um, treat customers with integrity. And and uh, when, when customers are in trouble and broken down, we just need to fix it and get on with it. Uh, and in a lot of cases, you need to get in there and fix it. You know, I've seen examples where other organisations, when something happens like that, for a start, everything gets pulled up and they they talk about who's going to pay for it before they get on and do anything, where we really do try to work on, hey, let's get that machine operating back to its peak performance ASAP. And then once it's up and operating, then we circle back and have the discussion on, you know, is it a warranty or is it an outer warranty? Or, um, But, you know, to circle that back to a culture thing, you know, I just I just think that's um, getting as many in the team operating with the same principles and doing that over and over and over and over again that, you know, the organisation, um, I guess that's how the culture's uh, built up over time or, or has got to where it is. Are those things documented at H&P, Aaron, the, you know, the core values, the the service standards, the um, non-negotiables, are they are those things documented or is it just part of the, the DNA? Well, well, one thing with 300 staff, everything's got to be documented. So, yeah. so um, yeah, all our processes and procedures um, and policy uh, are all documented, um, but there would be a certain amount that aren't in regards to... Um, Around the culture piece, uh, but but from you know from a, from a HR or, or um, you know an operations standpoint, we probably went through the process of documenting everything um, probably probably fifteen years ago. Um, you know to the point where everyone has a really clear understanding of what they're employed to do, their their roles and responsibilities, and their job description are all. Uh, drawn up and agreed to, and um, you know, probably probably can't talk to a lot of that because we did it a fair while ago. But um, you know, I, I think um, the, the clearer you can make it for everybody in the business, um, who they are and what they're expected to do, and how the business is to get that done through 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 processes. Um, I guess then, then the next, next, the next thing to talk about is discipline and making sure that you, you stay uh, true to that and make sure you hold hold people to account when when they don't follow a process and that's, you know, that's a lot more difficult than um, than what you initially think as well. We um with our clients, we sort of work with their families and their core team to get clear on values and. Um, communication rhythms and standards and get all those things on paper and we absolutely sort of advocate for two-day planning days and having quarterly plans and monthly and then weekly meetings and even daily huddles um, so that there is that alignment and that accountability. Do you have a rhythm like that that underpins how each of your locations operate? Yeah, so... um... And I probably can't recite them straight from the top of the head, but yeah, we have a meeting rhythm right through the organisation that's set from you know how often the board meets, how often our uh, functional managers meet, 
and then at the store, how often they have um, branch meetings, department meetings, safety meetings, um, all, all set out in a in a annual, half yearly, quarterly, and uh, weekly kind of pattern. Uh, essentially, just a and the reality is, if you think about it as a holistic kind of standpoint, those those conversations are happening. It's just funneling funneling them into a into a rhythm that that syncs everyone up at the same time rather than having to repeat yourself over dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Yeah, absolutely. Efficiency comes from it. What are you most proud of over the last 10, 15 years as this team has grown out? Um, When you reflect back, Aaron? Most proud of. Well, I haven't stuffed it up. I'm the third generation. I haven't stuffed it up yet. So that's uh, that's probably an achievement in itself. Um, but I'd have to say my team and and our staff. You know, we the business is nothing without our employees, and our employees are our single biggest asset. So um, you know, some of the some of the things that I hear about, you know, examples are during harvest when. We've got a customer that's had a, a major machine failure and the lengths that some of our people will go to to interact with each other, to support each other, to, to help a customer out, truly inspiring. So sing, single biggest thing would be would be the staff, I'd say. And then and then secondly, you know, we're a multi-generational family business and um you know the the stats are against us once we go past that third gen. So, um, you know, I'm I'm pretty proud to to be able to continue. H uh, and P is a generational family business, and I'm looking forward to. You know, my my kids uh, similar to your kids, Jeremy. Uh, I've got a 12 year old, a 10 year old, and a seven year old. But you know, I really do hope um, that they one day would be interested to, to be in the business and, and carry on HP into its uh, fourth generation. Aaron, I know one of the key things that I hear about that I think sets you apart as an employer is the um, top, bun, top Gun program that you've pioneered. Um, and I know it's really high regarded, highly regarded as sort of the premier opportunity for young apprentices entering the industry. Would you mind just speaking to the Top Gun program and how that came to be and perhaps even the impact it's having on young entrants into the industry? Yeah, so uh, Top Gun is our apprentice program and we developed it just out of sheer need for um, having to fill the pipe from the bottom up, Um, you you know, everyone out there understands how hard it is to get uh, get labour uh, in the ag space, and you know, for us, fifty percent of our workforce uh, are, are workshop mechanics, and um, you know, we find it quite difficult competing with mines and and uh, other industries. Not necessarily competing with anyone else in the industry, but um, external industries. So we really wanted to, you know, when I did my apprenticeship, we went to the local TAFE. I spent two years working on on Holden Red engines and and trucks before we even saw the first tractor. So the relevance to that curriculum, to what I was actually doing day to day was was not not really there and not really aligned. So going about seven years ago, we 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 wanted to, to do three things. We wanted to 
we felt that we were accepting any kid that came just because we didn't have enough volume coming in through the front door. So we really wanted to ramp up our recruitment. And that started with visiting schools and um, starting a lot earlier in the process. And I guess building it up to a point where now we have over 100 people apply for our apprentices every year and we get to really pick the cream of the crop um, from that standpoint. So getting a lot higher uh, quality um, uh, candidate at the start. Secondly, we wanted to really bolster our um, curriculum and, and we partnered with TAFE. Uh, we, we had a bit of a look out there and we felt that TAFE could deliver to us what we needed. And essentially what we've done was guaranteed them X amount of mechanics per year to a point where they dedicated our own classroom and our own workshop. And then they allowed us to write the curriculum for them to deliver. And I think that was a bit of a game changer because we feel that we've picked up one to two years efficiency in that whole process by, you know, getting them what what they're getting taught day to day and, and what what we we have them doing day to day in the work workspace, having that as lined as possible has been a bit of a game changer. And then finally is just understanding the, the natural trends of of the current generation being the millennials, you know, you know, if you go back a couple of generations ago, a, a career was seen to be 25, 30 years. With millennials, a career is 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 seen to be five to seven years. So so we we identified that we needed to provide a career path for our employees and get out in our performance um, uh, in our employee performance reviews and start talking about them nice and early. So, so when our apprentices qualified and then they're, you know, they're one to two years outside their, 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 their trade, we're talking about where next for them in the business rather for, rather than them thinking that they're going to go to the U S driver harvester, or they're going to go try a different industry because they've, you know, they've got nothing more to learn. So, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot of people coming up through, um, through the parts department, others through the, the sales department, others staying in the service department, but staying in the management management side, all, all dependent on what personality those individuals are and where they want to be in the business. I think it's such an important conversation. One being unique around how we attract talent to our businesses, but then having that career path as the primary method around how which we retain them in our businesses, I think farming families could learn a lot just reflecting on that last conversation. Um, and I think as farming families in business together, that having a career path for our people is a key means by which to retain. And even if we have a small team, it's just equally as relevant um, as it is for the likes of Hutchin and Pierce who are trying to retain young talent long-term in a larger team. Um, if we turn our attention for a moment to your clients, Aaron, um, probably not dissimilar to ours being sort of progressive farming families, um, when you get to know them as you have over generations, the, there must be a huge diversity of farmer business that you interact with. What would be your assessment of, of how good their um, systems meeting rhythms, um, professional 
practices and cultures are and what impresses you most about the businesses that are getting that right? Well, there's probably every example on the spectrum there um, across yeah. across the customer base, but you know, probably the 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 customers that I really do enjoy dealing with is a customer that treats uh, our relationship as a partnership, and um, we can get to the point where you know we we do a lot of forward planning, we 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 have a really good understanding of what they're trying to achieve. And, and we do the best we can to, I guess, offer solutions at the right time for our customer base. Um, and, and like I reiterated there before, we've got a, you know, we've got a lot of corporate business, we've got a lot of um, government business, we've got a lot of family farms. But I really do enjoy dealing with generational family farms, where whether it be it second gen, third gen, some of them even fourth gen, where they're really understanding that hey that the stakes are pretty high now and they've really got to step up on the business side um you know they've, they've grown good crops but to be honest every generation before them has grown good crops but moving forward they've they've really got to build a business as strong as um you know their ability to grow good crops or, or livestock or whatnot and I'm seeing more and more of of those businesses starting to, um, you know, pop through and and uh, really really step up to the plate there. And and I guess that's that's the if I could categorise all the clients, that's that's a, a part that I'm really engaged and enjoy dealing with. Thank you. Yeah, it speaks to just how important it is that we are applying good business practice, like you have to. Hutchin and Pierce back into our farming businesses if we do want them to genuinely grow and grow strongly into the future. So, Aaron, if we look forward now, innovation um, and advancement in your space, what's most exciting about what you're seeing and what the industry can expect? You touched on that sort of variable rate um, green on green spraying technology and the impact that that might have. Are there other insights that you can share about what um, we have in front of us by way of a, sort of a technological advancement standpoint? Yeah, for, for a long time, I think it's 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 all been about bigger and faster and and more efficient. I I think um, moving forward, that may or may not be the case. I think. You know, we'll see smarter, smaller machines potentially, and machines that that work in in teams, I guess. Uh, but but obviously, autonomy is is a um, is to be honest, just around the corner. But it's not as simple as just getting a tractor to drive by itself. Um, the, the the complexity is getting the tractor to make all the decision that the that the operator makes in the seat. So it's. I guess it's that journey to autonomy that you'll probably see John Deere tackling one little step at a time. Um, and a lot of that's happening without anyone kind of understanding what's going on with, you know, we've got myjohndeere.com and we've got our operations centre. Um, you know, we're trying to automate predict, uh, automate turns at the end. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're slowly filling in that jigsaw puzzle, I suppose, to get to a point where we can have autonomous machines that are, are doing more than just a simple ploughing 
or, or a very simple task, you know, be it spraying or harvesting. I guess that's that's where we're heading. And um, you know, part of that journey, if you think about it, we've been for a long time. We've been managing field by field, and then it's got down to um, section by section, and then you know, now we're we're nearly to the point where we've got the tools to individually monitor each animal on the farm or each plant on the farm. And, you know, using some of that technology I talked about with our uh, boom sprays, you know, I feel that that's another way to say for the last 180 years, we've, we've relied on information to be passed down through individual to individual to, to I guess, help us learn how to um, get better at what we're doing and, and now moving forward it's all about the data and the analytic analytics and um, from our standpoint it's it's how we can help our customers understand and in and get the insights out of the data uh, to help grow better crops I guess do you see Hutchin and Pierce changing in its focus? into the future or is it again the business model staying the same just with new technology as new technologies become available well i think we'll be the same in regards to supporting our customers do what they do but um yeah i see a big change in regards to moving from um mechanical uh mechanical failures to um algorithm failures so i suppose use that just as an example um you know, potentially I also see some ownership structure changes, you know, it may, may prove to happen, it may not, but in regards to who actually owns the machines, you know, will farmers always continue to buy machines or will they move to a rental model or an operating lease model or, um, I, I don't know, but, you know, from our, from a HMP standpoint, we want to be ready for anything and, you know, it's not the, what's the uh, Charles Darwin saying, it's not the smartest of species that survive, nor the most intelligent. It's the ones that are most adaptable to change. So just being adaptable to to move and adjust and be nimble to whatever whatever our customers want moving forward, we've got to develop the solutions and, and be there to support them. And in and around that, what comment would you have for your clients and our clients around um, being agile and adaptive? How practically can farmers be um, be the beasts that survive into the future? I, I don't... Well, what I... I look at change, be it good or bad, that comes to us, I, sit, I try to look at the opportunity or try and see what, what is the upside or the opportunity can be, you know, and, and COVID was a great example, you know, um, you know, for a while, everyone thought the world was going to end, but uh, quickly uh, here at HMP, we, we tried to work out, okay, what's our, what's our opportunity here? And we could, you know, we knew that we had a great season behind us and we knew that uh, we knew that um, inventory was going to get tight. So, Really early on in the pandemic, we were ordering up hard and trying to get out ahead of this thing. And I think if if you if you're focused on turning negatives into positives, um, 
I don't know if you can go wrong. Great comment. Thank you. So, Aaron, I really appreciate your time. And, you know, I, I do look through this podcast to uncover some of the most compelling leadership stories that exist in regional Australia. And I genuinely think that Hutchin and Pierce and the growth that it has achieved under your leadership through the third generation of that business is um, it is one of those great regional success stories. It's um, understated and you guys keep your head down and, and do it with real humility um, and with genuine care. And um, I'm just really grateful that you've given us an hour of your time to, to touch on and share the Hutch and, and Pierce story and congratulations on what you have achieved and what no doubt you will continue to achieve into the future. Thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for the kind words. And so just to reflect on the conversation we've just had with Aaron Hutchin, who's third generation in Hutchin and Pierce, there's so many relevant points that he made in that conversation that are so important to how we lead our farm businesses. From having a vision to having documented core values to having employees clear in their roles, um, having company standards and non-negotiables clear, to having a business model that is focused so that you're just as clear on what you're not doing and making decisions around what you need to stop doing as you are with what you keep doing. He touched on the 80-20 principle, the Pareto principle, which there's so much truth in that, that 80% of our revenue comes from somewhere, yet 80% of our energy and effort often goes somewhere else. And we've got to let go of some of those lower value activities that are taking up a lot of our focus and energy and focus intently on the 80% um, rather than the 20. You know, he spoke about the importance of being unique in how you attract employees into your business and the importance of career ladders so that we do our best to be having conversations with our people that inspire them to stay with us and climb our career ladder rather than jumping ship and clearing and, and climbing someone else's ladder. Um, the importance of doing business with suppliers and um, clients, key clients with whom we feel values aligned um, and with whom help us bring something unique and valuable into the industry. And I guess for me too, I mean, to go from a team of 60 to a team of 300, as a young manager and a young leader, he was in his early 20s when he stepped into management of that company, just being respectful, being humble, being authentic, really listening and bringing people along for the ride and having them feel like they're part of the decision process are all such great reflections and such great insights. Um, what a cracking leader. What a great regional success story. Um, just really happy that I've had the chance to have that conversation with him and, and bring the Hutchin and Pierce story to the Profitable Farmer podcast. So I look forward to hearing your comments on that. Jump onto Profitable Farmer Facebook group and share any questions or any insights. Um, all the best for now, and I look forward to checking in again shortly. Thank you. Take care and speak soon.